Well, it is absolutely great to be with you today. Do trust that your faith will be stirred through uh, this message. And hopefully it won't be too long before we'll be meeting face to face. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3 in the first 10 verses. I'm reading from the New International Version. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave, him, gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter, and, uh, Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. A little later in the chapter, we read how he's kind of holding on to them as well. But he's been healed. When all the people saw him walking, and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, now in chapter 2, we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon this small company of believers and how that outpouring had sent them out full of passion, full of power into the streets where they spoke in tongues and then preached the gospel. And 3,000 were saved and added and a new community were, was, was formed. A community that loved God's word, loved each other, shared their possessions, and we're also told that many signs and wonders took place. And it's that one phrase that Luke, the writer of uh, the book of Acts, as you know, that one phrase that he picks up now. He says that this kind of thing happened many times. This was a regular occurrence. There were many signs and wonders. That was, of course, typical of Christ's earthly ministry. He regularly did very many miracles of healing and of deliverance. And we see no essential break or difference between the example of Jesus and the practice of his followers. They too performed many signs and wonders. And so having stated the fact of miracles in Acts 2, Luke then gives us an example of one of these wonders. And a remarkable one, although all wonders are of course remarkable, but he zooms in on an example for us. And that's what we're reading in chapter 3. We see in verse 1, this was just a regular day. 
They were going about their business. They went up to the temple. They were praying. We're told in verse 2 that there was a man there begging at the entrance. He'd been lame from birth. And obviously Luke, who was himself a physician, either interviewed the man at a later date or got the facts to his satisfaction. Uh, This wasn't a recent injury or a disability that had suddenly come upon this man. He had never walked unaided And he was set down every place in that very spot in order to get money. And sure enough, in verses 3 and 4, we're told that he actually asks Peter and John for money. Peter looks directly at the man. He looks intensely at him. We're told, as did John, and the man looks at them also expecting to receive some cash. Now, I kind of want us to pause before we examine what Peter does next, because what he says next is remarkable. We've, we've read it just now. Silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then he pulls it up and the man is totally healed. Now, that's an amazing statement. And I want to suggest to you that Peter's response would not typically be our response when we are asked for money from someone who's begging. And and I want to look at a few alternatives to what Peter did that are good. Of course, there are bad alternatives to what Peter did. Peter said, we're told Peter looked at the man. A bad alternative would have been for Peter not to have even acknowledged him, to not look at him, to walk past as though the person wasn't there, as though he didn't exist, as though he wasn't important, as though he was beneath him. But I want to look at the good alternatives and all these alternative responses that we're going to go through are actually good. What could Peter, as a good Christian leader, have said? Complete the sentence, okay? Fill in the blanks. Silver and gold I do not have, but... He could have said, silver and gold I don't have, but, but John, have you, got your, have you got your wallet with you? <laughs> with you? No, says John, I don't have. Silver and gold, we don't have, but we have another friend who's got loads of money, plenty of resources. We will go and we'll find him after the time of prayer and we'll come back. So we'll be back in about an hour and we will be able to provide you with some money. That's a a good alternative to what Peter said. Silver and gold, I don't have, but... We're going to start a ministry amongst the poor. We're going to develop what, what in time will come to be known as a soup kitchen. And uh, so that you don't have to sit here and beg like this. We want to lift you up. We want to help you. He could have said that. That's a good alternative. He could have said, we don't have silver and gold, but we are going to start something called a hospital where we'll train people to become medical experts. We'll provide 24-hour nursing care. This was all a Christian idea, of course, and they'll help you. But that'll happen in about 300 years, so you'll, you'll have to... But he could have said, we're going to do something of that kind of nature, and that's a good thing, a totally brilliant thing. He could have said, we're actually going to petition the Roman authorities. We don't have silver and gold, but we're going to petition government to implement a a poverty alleviation strategy, uh, and we're working on that right now. That's a good thing too. He could have said, we don't have silver and gold, but why don't you join a Bible study in our church on suffering and on the sovereignty of God, and it will help you. He didn't say that. That would have been a good thing to say. He could have said, silver and gold we don't have, but 
let, let's introduce you to the Christian community so that you don't have to go through these struggles alone. And, of course, the most obvious one is he could have said, silver and gold I don't have, but let me tell you the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus so that you can understand the bigger issue of your need of forgiveness and of salvation. That's the the bigger provision that you actually need. Now, of course, the the, the person, the, the, the lame man did hear the gospel later on, but that wasn't what Peter did. All those alternatives are good. They're all Christian. They're all right. They're all things that we ought to be doing and that we must be doing more of. They're all legitimate. And yet, none of them were Peter's instinctive, immediate, in-the-moment response. Why was Peter's response so very different from ours when, uh, when a beggar asks us for money or when we're, in, we're in a similar situation? That's the question that I, I want to look at. And, and there are several aspects to the answer to that, to that question, of course. If chapters 2 and 3 are close together in terms of time, and it seems that they are, uh, one aspect of the answer is, frankly, Peter has just been overwhelmingly filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he's like, he's got, he's anointed. He, he's, he's not kind of acting in a kind of, in, in the standard old way that he, he used to act before he'd been drenched, before he'd been, as Jesus said, clothed with power from on high. He's had an experience of the Spirit and he just, he's, he's responding to, to God in the sense of that anointing that's upon him. That's one aspect of the answer. Secondly, he, in that moment, receives a gift of faith. This man's going to be healed, and he acts in accordance with it. Now, that would not necessarily have happened on another day or in another situation, but in this situation, there's a gift of faith. He, he knows this, this man's going to be healed, and he acts on that gift of faith. Another key aspect of all of this in Peter's response is, of course, his expectation that God will act now, that God will do something now, that God is, I am. Not just, I did stuff before and I'm going to do stuff in the future, but I am now. It's that sense that God, uh, where it says, He is and He was and He is to come. He is. It's the same principle Jesus Uh, acted on, of course, at the tomb of Lazarus when he asked him, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead and and, and, and that your brother will be raised? And uh, Martha and Mary said, of course we believe he will be in the future at the resurrection. That's when it's going to happen. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. There is an expectation of something happening now, even though, of course, we do believe the ultimate is going to come in the future, which reminds me of a friend whose adult son is deaf and uh, born deaf. And they, of course, as believers, they prayed thousands of times and wept for him. And and then a famous healing ministry, uh, a ministry that had a track record of, of tremendous healings came to their town and they, they prayed and they fasted in preparation for, for the moment. And they went as a family to the meetings and indeed the young man was prayed for 
and uh, by, the, by the man himself, by the guy. He prayed for him, laid hands on him, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And they were surprised, shocked, disappointed, just a whole range of emotions going through them as parents of their, I think he was like 18, 19 by, by this stage. Uh, but the young man himself was angry and silent. And they went home after the, the meeting or after the whole series of meetings and he went into his room and he was just silent. And after an hour or so, they heard him weeping in his room and crying and then wailing and sobbing. And so as parents, they, they go into his room and they sit with him and they say, we're just, we're so sorry. You know, we don't understand, but we pray and we're sorry. And the young man said, no, no, no. Through his tears, he said, no, Jesus just met with me. You don't understand. Jesus met with me. And Jesus said to me, the first voice you will ever hear will be my voice. My voice will be the first voice that you ever hear. And as a family, they, they wept together and they realized, yes, ultimately, ultimately we know the fullness of the kingdom of God and, and, and the, the restoration of our bodies and the resurrection of our new bodies is coming in the new age, in the, in, after Christ returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth. So I'm not suggesting that, that in any way that there's a kind of 100% that it has to happen now. We're, we're, we know we're growing in these things. I'm not suggesting that we all rush out and, and grab hold of the sick or beggars and command them to walk. The ultimate healing of our bodies is at the, the resurrection at the end. But, but, even though we know there's something of that reality, Peter has got hold of something here it was essential to his understanding so that his instinctive response is for immediate healing. He, he, he seems to have something that we don't and that, in fact, we need. So there's this aspect of God acting now that I think was very much in Peter's mindset. The alternatives that we've looked at are long-term formation issues, policy issues, and so on. But Peter's saying, I've got something to give you. I know I have something to give you right now. I think, though, having said all those uh, explanations for why Peter responded that he did, the main one is that he'd been with Jesus. Peter had been with Jesus for three years, and therefore he knew the standard Jesus response to this. He understood that discipleship meant that if Jesus is doing something, then I'm supposed to be doing it too. And, and that's the explanation, of course, that when, Peter, when Jesus is walking on the water and they're trying to discern, is it really Jesus or some evil spirit or a ghost or something like that, Peter has the answer. If it's you, Lord, tell me to do what you're doing also. If it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you on the water. That would be the evidence that it must be Jesus. And of course, Peter did for a, for a, few, 
for some steps. We don't know how many. He did walk on the water. That aspect of Peter's own discipleship relationship, discipling relationship with, with Christ means that he gets to the place where he can actually say, what I know I have, I give to you. And that's what he does. That's his instinctive response. It's not any of these other good alternatives or even to look forward to the final day. His instinctive response is now. And and he says it to the man and then without waiting for the man to respond, he just lifts him up and we're told the man's ankles and feet were strengthened. So that's where the, the crux of the problem was. And he began to walk and then to leap and then to praise God. And the people, of course, were amazed. Of course they were amazed because it is amazing. And so you say, well, how then, if we read this of Peter, how then do we come to the place where we might be able to say, what I know I have, I give you, in Jesus' name, be healed. How do we get to that point? And no one can actually answer that for you specifically. And I certainly feel like I've only touched the fringes of, of these things. But, and I'm digressing from the passage here, but I want to offer three scriptural principles that I hope will cause you, will help you take a journey into a deeper relationship with, with Christ, uh, with the Father, Son, and with the Holy Spirit, and which may help you, which should help you serve people in ministry situations, in serving situations like this as they arrive. And those three, as they arise, and those three principles are authority, faith, and compassion. So looking at authority first, and this is brief, but authority first. If you read Luke chapter seven, the beginning there, you'll see that a centurion, a Roman soldier who's responsible for 100 soldiers, grasps that Jesus is healing and he's setting people free because he has authority. That's what the soldier, the centurion, is seeing. He, he gets that. He, he understands that. And he says to Jesus, therefore, you don't need to come to my home because of my servant who's sick. You don't need to come to my home and actually be there. You just say the word because I'm under authority and I, I have soldiers who are under my authority and I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to the, another one, come, and, and he comes. And it's just the same with you, except you're doing it with sicknesses and demons. You say, go, and the demons go. You say, healing, come, and the healings come and that's why it works because it's about authority and Jesus was amazed at this man's clarity of faith and he says yes that's exactly right so the centurion is doing two things firstly he understands who Jesus is and the authority that Jesus has that he is in reality Lord over sickness and over demons And he also understands that that's how the universe is. He understands the nature of the universe in that sense, that sickness and demons have to obey Jesus, that darkness has to go when light comes. That's just how the universe is. 
So let me illustrate it in this way. Now, I don't know if you have a pet dog. Uh, this doesn't work with cats, this illustration. But if you have a dog, you know, the question is this. Uh, why do dogs obey us? You know, uh, we, have, we, have, we have dogs, and it, there was one particular dog, um, which bizarrely we called Bear, and he doesn't look like a bear, but anyway, that was my son calling him Bear. He, he always tries to sneak into the house. And as soon, he, as soon as he comes in, if I say one word, if I say, out, he's up and he's gone. <laughs> he just obeys. When people come to the front, if the dogs are at the front, I say, round the back, round the back. And they all, all of them, we got three, all three just immediately go round the back of the house. I just need to say the word and they respond. That's just how God set up the universe. That's why we are able to train animals to do things. There are no human zoos. You know, the animals haven't got together and said, listen, like Animal Farm, the animals haven't got together and said, listen, let's overthrow the humans. Um, we are training, that's how God set things up for the work. And it's the same in the kingdom of God. Light expels darkness. Demons submit to Jesus. Sickness goes when Jesus comes. The centurion sees this happening in front of him. That's what he's seeing. And he, he, he sees it very clearly. And so he says, Lord, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word. Just say the word. And then, of course, the miracle happens. The servant who's in bed in somewhere in the centurion's house is healed in that very moment. Now, in Acts chapter 3, it's not Jesus, it's Peter. But Peter knows the authority that he has in God because there's a history. He's got a history of learning and failing and learning and failing and learning and succeeding and getting better. He's got a history of faith and he's got a history of acts of faith, particularly in the miraculous. And you and I need to grow in authority. There may be moments when God increases our clarity, increases our experience in these things, and we need to grow. And how do we grow? Well, that's a combination, isn't it, of knowing the Word of God, of knowing who you are in Christ and what the scope and the limits of your authority are as a believer. It's about growing in prayer so that you know the Lord, so that you're in touch with Him, and growing in experience so that you help rather than hurt people. So you have to go on a journey. Secondly, faith, that's authority. Faith, as I say, these things are brief. Faith, in Acts 3, the faith for the miracle is not exercised by the person who needs the healing. Did you hear that? In Acts chapter 3, the faith for the miracle is not exercised by the person needing the healing. In fact, he's looking at them expecting to get money, as you know. Peter is exercising the faith. And in fact, he says it a little later on, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. He's not pointing to himself or to John. 
He's not saying it's by our own piety or by our own power and superiority that these things are done. No, no. He says, not because we're any more holy, then it's purely faith. He's, he's reflecting that they put their mere faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, this miracle is evidence that Christ died for your sins, rose again from the dead, and is alive and interacting with humanity right now. And he turns it into an evangelistic opportunity. And it's that faith that Peter exercised that worked for this man. It's not always the same. In Acts 14, 8 to 10, we read, in Lystra there sat a man who was lame. Same kind of thing. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. So a very similar condition. He listened to Paul as, as he was speaking, as Paul was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him. So there is this kind of focus moment that God's going to act saw that he had faith to be healed, that the man had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Amazing, again. Now, at first sight, it sounds like that the, the person needing the healing is the one who exercises faith, and that's true. In this instance, in Acts 14, many years later, it's the person who, who uh, needs the healing. They are exercising faith. And Paul saw that he had faith somehow. We're not told how. But of course, if you've ever led any kind of meeting where there's an expectation of God breaking in, you will see immediately that Paul also is exercising faith when he calls out to a man who has been lame from birth, Stand up on your feet. <laughs> so in this second instance, we have both the person needing healing and the Christian who's ministering to them, both exercising faith. If we revisit our centurion in Luke 7, the sick servant, the recipient of the healing, is lying in bed at the centurion's house. He knows nothing of what has taken place, but he suddenly feels better. He's... he's he just thought, wow, I've just suddenly made a recovery. I'm feeling much better. I'm able to get up. It's an unaccountable recovery. Uh, and then he only later hears someone actually was petitioning Jesus on your behalf. And I think there are very, very many medical recoveries that can't quite be accounted for or defined exactly, they're not textbook, but people just get better. And I think they fall into this category. Someone somewhere is praying. I'm not saying that as an absolute, but I think there are many, many, many instances of unaccounted recoveries that are due to people praying to Jesus. In terms of growing our faith, we've talked about authority, I would suggest the following. Obviously the Word of God is key. And the discipline of deciding that your expectation is going to be based ever increasingly on the promises of God's word rather than your previous experience is crucial. We need to continually lift our faith up to the measure of God's word 
and not go down or remain where we are in terms of our own experience. We need to grow in faith. Our failures, our disappointments cannot ultimately be the guide for how we minister to others. And I also suspect that many of the exhortations in Scripture and prayer promises which people, when they're sick, take to themselves are actually intended for the ministers, for the Peters and the Pauls and the Priscillas to actually apply into that. Like, you know, if you have faith as small as a, mount, as a, as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move. You know, sure, a sick person could say, oh, Lord. But I think those who are ministering, Jesus is equipping his, his disciples to minister to a lost and a sick world. And so I think a lot of those promises is for those of us who are ministering. And if there's failure, it's not, we're not saying, oh, it's the person who's sick. You're sick. And also, you're a bit of a failure when it comes to faith. No, no, no. Look the other direction. What about us? Peter just says, I know what I have and I give it to you. Well, where, where are we in that? Where are we in that? So we need to grow in authority and in faith. The Bible says the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20. And the gentlest of all Jesus' exhortations to believe is Matthew 7, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Forever ask receives, whoever seeks finds and the door is open to the one who knocks upon it, persevering. So pray these kinds of promises as you find them in Scripture. Write them down. Pray them into your spirit. Let them shape your understanding and your thinking so that you learn to trust him. And then also act in accordance with the measure of your faith, just as with the measure of your authority. You need to grow graciously, steadily, in wisdom, as well as in your expectation of what could take place. And then thirdly and lastly, compassion. You know, compassion is obviously such an important key to all that we do, both in evangelism, in ministry to one another, and in our service to the outside world as well. Of course, compassion. And Peter here is bold, yes. He's full of faith, yes. He's got authority, yes, but he's compassionate too. And it seems to me that many modern healing ministries, the emphasis, the focus is power. You know, it's the power thing. It seems high-powered, you know, and style, and we know how to do this. It's all about the man of God and the wealth that his faith has created and generated out of nothing. And he's got his car, he's got his servants, and he's got his separation from the people because of his supposed holiness. But when a man with leprosy approached Jesus, falling on his knees with such humility, said, if you are willing, you can make me clean, we read, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And we read, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. How wonderful. Jesus moved with compassion from the very depths of his being when he sees 
suffering. And so, yes, we need boldness, but yes, we need compassion and we need closeness to people. Jesus doesn't pray for the sick. He merely rebukes the condition or grants, you know, um, hearing to the deaf or sight to the blind and so on. He takes authority over it. And that is a pattern of ministry that we ought to grow into. But, but if you empty the crucial ingredient of compassion, then it's just shouting and sweating. And sometimes it can degenerate into play acting and exaggeration. So we see these three beautiful elements in the healing ministry of Christ and in Peter's healing ministry and in the others. And we should seek to grow in each of these areas too. Authority, faith and compassion. And one final thought as I end on silver and gold I do not have. <laughs> you may feel, look, I'm not a wealthy person. I don't, I don't have resources. I mean, who am I? I, I? I don't have great faith stories to talk about. I don't have, you know, qualifications. I'm not a, a leader. I'm not an upfront person. Listen, you go to Jesus. <laughs> Seek his face. And God will give you such adventures and such treasures so that you will know you've got something to give. You can get to that place like Peter did of saying, I know I have something to give to you, whether that's a healing ministry or whether that's the gospel itself proclaimed so that many hundreds get saved or that just the love and the compassion of Christ in a harsh and a hard world. All these treasures you can obtain from Jesus directly. Don't you ever give in to the worldliness of elitism and exclusion. Don't ever be intimidated by snobbery. You might not have silver and gold, but if you love Jesus and you're willing to step out for him, you're like the Christians of the Bible. You're like Peter. And God will surpass the acts of the fakers and the worldly would-bes and give you treasures in him and victories in him that bless the lives of others. You probably discover you've got more resources than you ever realized that you had as you begin to serve. And your legacy, like the apostles, won't be your wealth or maybe not even your words, but your acts, your deeds, your victories in the lives of those that you serve. These are the treasures that we will carry to heaven with us. Now, I think Peter understood that. He saw that. In the, he kind of knew all of that instinctively. So that in that moment, as that gift of faith kind of suddenly emerged in his spirit, he was able to say, silver and gold I don't have, but what I know I have, I give to you in Jesus' name. Walk. Peter had gone through that journey with Christ. It's a journey of faith and experience that you can go through with Christ as well. And I pray that as you do, God will use you 
to bring great blessing to those around you. Amen? Amen.